0: Hey, I'm excited today, as you can tell, we're beginning a new series going through the book of James together as a church family. I'm really excited about it. James is one of the most practical and applicable books um, easily uh, applied from the New Testament and even all of scripture. Uh, Before we go any further, I just want to take a moment to pray. God, we acknowledge you right now. We recognize that as we open your word, we need your spirit to be at work guiding what I say, guiding what we hear, opening our hearts to receive and believe and be transformed by the truth of your word. God, I ask that you would be at work and that this wouldn't just be an inspiring speech or anything like that, but it would be teaching from your word that would transform us, that we could leave different than when we came unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think for a moment, what's the hardest Test You've ever had to take in your life. What's the hardest test you've ever taken. Was it perhaps maybe hearkening back to algebra or calculus or trigonometry, maybe Spanish? Maybe it was a driving test that had you stressed out. Maybe bump it up a notch. Maybe you had to take the MCAT or the bar or if you're in the military, the ASVAB. Lots of different tests in life. Maybe the hardest test you ever had to take for varying reasons could have been a pregnancy test because you thought you're done and God was like, ha, twins. (laughs) Or perhaps a pregnancy test is a hard test for you to take because you're fearful of disappointment again. It can be a hard test to take in that light. And there's other tests that are hard Or difficult to walk through like blood tests can be scary there's a lot of different tests that we face that people have different stresses or anxieties or concerns or worries around but what is it about tests in general that make them a source of fear and anxiety and concern well, it's generally, generally the concern or worry about the outcome of the test. What will be revealed? What will be proven by the test? See, the, the purpose, ultimately, of a test is to prove. Tests are meant to prove. They prove the presence of knowledge. They prove skill, aptitude, ability. They prove experience. They can prove disease or the lack thereof, pregnancy or the lack thereof. Tests of all sorts prove all sorts of different things. Or, in the case of the book of James, this letter that James wrote, it proves faith. It can prove our faith so much so that the letter that James wrote to the church that was spread abroad has a a thread throughout it of genuine faith in the life of a believer being proven multiple ways. Through testing, being proven through our ministry and service to others, like widows and orphans, being proven by the way that we live, the things that we do. This is a letter where James is concerned with our faith being genuine and authentic. In fact, he would go on, James would say, you say I have faith and you have works, but I will show you my faith by my works, saying I'm going to prove my faith to you by the way that I live. Another time he would write, true and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans. In other words, you want to prove your faith? Let's see how you handle caring for those who cannot care for themselves and who have nothing to give back to you. How does it look when it comes to taking care of them? Further, as he would write in the very beginning of this letter where he would say, count it all joy, brothers When you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James, the author of this letter, is James the brother of Jesus. He's the brother of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about James is that as he grew up, he actually was not originally a believer in his brother as Messiah, as Probably any of us would struggle growing up in the home. In fact, Jesus said a prophet's not welcome without honor in his hometown, that people didn't believe he was who he said he was, whom he revealed himself to be because of familiarity, and James was not excluded from that. James, Jesus's brother, throughout a large chunk of his life or throughout up into the ministry of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, which is actually why this same James is one of the greatest testimonies To the truth of the gospel and the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. Because if you've got a guy who's going, yeah, my brother ain't the Messiah. Yet then goes, oh, he is the Messiah. In fact, I'm going to go around telling everyone that he is. In fact, I'm willing to be martyred and stoned to death for the message of the salvation that is found in my brother, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. Brotherly love can be pretty strong. But if your brother was putting on some facade, some show going, I'm the Messiah, I'm the savior of the world. And you're like, yeah, no, you're not. You're not going to get stoned to death for him. James's willing martyrdom is a great testimony to the truth of the resurrection of Christ, as well as all the apostles. They're not going to die for this man who's just putting on some show. Can you imagine being James growing up in the house of Jesus Like how many of you have a sibling maybe? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) How many of you have a sibling that maybe you've grown up living under the shadow of? This comparison. Can you imagine being James and like maybe you were sassing your mom and she comes in and she's like, James, listen, this is unacceptable. He's like, let me go, be more like Jesus. (laughs) That's what I hear all the time. The sinless man, Jesus Christ, living his whole life without sin. Maybe that's some of what came into uh, James's uh, hardened heart and what might have kept him from having faith in Christ until the Lord did convert him. James, this brother of the Lord, he was also a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter as one of the very first letters written by any of the apostles. It was written probably between A.D. 40 and 45. Let's look at James 1 and verse 1. He says this, James, a servant of God, that, that word servant could also be rendered out slave. James, a slave or servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, this is where most of us read that and we're like, okay, he's saying hi, let's move on. But we need to pay attention to who he's writing to. He says through the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's basically telling everyone Hey, I'm talking to those of you who were dispersed abroad because of the persecution and the affliction that came upon Israel and even was magnified upon Christians. He's talking to Christians from the 12 tribes of Israel who have been dispersed, diaspora, have been dispersed throughout the world because of the Assyrian and the Babylonian uh, conquests, but then even more were pushed out of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, you read about how the Christians were pushed out of Jerusalem because of the severe persecution that was ramping up. And so that's who he's writing to. He's writing to a people who are under the hammer of persecution in the first century. I mean, they're going through it. People who are in the crucible of suffering, I mean, we're talking about people who have lost a lot. They've lost their internet. They've lost their parking spaces and their followers on social media. No, they were really going through it. Sometimes we can magnify our problems that aren't really problems. You've heard the phrase uh, first world problems. Yeah. We're talking about a people who are well acquainted with suffering, with persecution with exile, even martyrdom, as James, the author of this letter, would die by stoning for his faith in Jesus Christ. This crowd spread abroad suffering for Christ. James writes to them, and we'll pick up there in verse two, here's what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Wow, James. Wow. Really? Read the room. Who are you writing to? People in the face of severe persecution, severe affliction and suffering and martyrdom. Like read the room and be sensitive to who you're talking to, James. You're going to just say, count it all joy. Like, do you know what we're going through? And actually, yes, he did know. He was very acquainted with it himself. And that's why he wrote what he wrote to remind them, to exhort them, to encourage them. Because he wasn't just flippantly saying, hey, guys, let's just uh, let's rejoice about it, right? Because, I mean, let's toughen up, buttercup. Let's cheer up. Let's be all right because, you know, what else are we going to do? So let's just rejoice. No, he gave a higher purpose and meaning behind the trials that they were facing, let's look again when he says, count it all joy, my brothers. First of all, let's stop right there and just notice that he is commissioning us, challenging us with something that is a choice. He says, count it all joy, meaning make the conscious decision to rejoice. This is a choice you will have to make when trials come. When hardship or affliction or suffering comes, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. A few things here. Trials comes from the Greek word, pyrasmos. This word means an attempt to learn the character or nature of something. To attempt to learn the character or nature of something. So he says, count it all joy when you experience various trials that are trying to reveal the character and nature that's within you, or as he would go on to say, that's in your faith. Count it joy when that happens. And he says something else here that we need to notice too. He says trials of various kinds. We, all of us, none of us are immune from trials and various kinds. It can look like slander or gossip where others are tearing you down with their words, where others are spreading lies or rumors about you. It can look like people treating you unfairly because of your faith in Christ. It can look like sickness or injury or ailments. It can look like hardship of many kinds. That's why he says, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. But he doesn't leave it there and just say, count it all joy, guys. All right, see you later. He says, count it all joy when you fall into or when you meet trials of various kinds, why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces patience or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, count it joy because it's doing something. When you face Trials of various kinds. Count it joy. Rejoice in it because God's actually doing something through it. He says that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. That word testing, if I can get a little more uh, nerdy with the Greek here, is dokimion. That means the process or means of determining the genuineness of something. This test meant to reveal whether or not faith is genuine. Now, we live in a society where it is really easy so far to have a profession of faith outwardly that inwardly is not genuine. In fact, in the third century, when Constantine made Christianity the religion of the state, where it's like, it's not persecuted anymore, and not only is it permitted, but it is promoted. Like, be a Christian. It's the cool thing to do. It actually began watering down the faith because you didn't have to put your neck out for it. And so everyone's like, well, yeah, let's all be Christians. That's the cool thing to do nowadays, and it'll help business, so let's become Christians. And in this day and in this age and probably in what is coming in our day and age and actually what's already still happening and has been happening for thousands of years around the world, we just haven't felt it in America very much. Is this testing of faith that proves through these trials, like James, his faith was proven when he said, I will not renounce. And he goes and gets stoned to death. Because of his faith that was proven in that moment. That test proves faith. Not only does it prove faith, but that faith that it's proven then grows and develops into steadfastness, unwavering. That whatever circumstances come your way, the more your faith is set. You're anchored on the word of God. You're you're set in the spirit of God. And when whatever might come your way, whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever affliction, whatever suffering comes your way, you become more steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Now, getting back to that word test... This was a term they used, that word I said a moment ago in the Greek, dokimion. That was a Greek word that, that if you were a first century Jew and you heard me say that, if you heard me say, knowing that the testing of your faith, the dokimion of your faith, if you were a first century Jew, you'd hear that and you'd have a mental picture. You would have a mental picture of a silversmith. This was a term that was regular in silversmithing in the first century. And it meant that they would take the silver and they would put it into a bowl and they would heat it up. They would raise the temperature. They would elevate the temperature with flames higher and higher and higher until the silver got so hot and liquidated that the impurities, the dross, would rise to the top. And that the silversmiths would then, with all the impurities and the dross on top of the silver, they would then scrape it off to purify the silver. Then they would let it cool down a little bit and then they would ramp up the temperature again, ramp up the flames again to melt it again and more impurities, more weaknesses in the silver would then one more time be revealed by floating to the top. They would do this over and over and over again until it got to a point where nothing else would come up and the silver was so pure that they could look at it and see their reflection. Dochemion, the the testing of the silver, Is the picture that the first century Jew would have heard when he says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith, like silver being heated up to raise impurities to the top, to raise weaknesses and deficiencies to the top, so you can see them and go, Oh, gross, that's not pure. And in love, the Holy Spirit prunes us as John 15 tells us that that the Father is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and the branches that produce fruit. He prunes them. Even the ones that are connected to the vine, abiding in Christ, you're growing, yet he comes and he prunes. He scrapes off that dross so that we can be formed more and more and more into the image of Christ. And James is telling us, you know how he does that? He doesn't do that by letting everything stay comfortable. He doesn't do that by keeping everything in our lives convenient. He says, on the other hand, count it joy when you go through trials, hardship, affliction, suffering, testing. Why? Because the impurities are being raised up so that they can be scraped off. So you can be formed more into the image of Christ and give glory to God. See, God cares about our growth more than our comfort. God cares about our growth more than our comfort. And we're, we have the odds stacked against us a little bit because we live in a world and in a society, especially here, where we are cultivated and trained and groomed to, to prioritize comfort and convenience above all. We live in a society where it's do everything you can to be as comfortable as you can. Say no to as much as you can to stay as convenient as you can. And the word of God is saying, hey, that's actually not good for you. In fact, how many of you as parents know that it's not good to parent in a way where your kids are happy with you all the time? Right? Why are you laughing? Because you know that if your kid's happy with you 100% of the time, that means you're just letting them have whatever they want and kids don't know what's good for them. They know what they like, they know it tastes good, they know it feels good, they know what they desire, but they don't know because they haven't lived long enough yet to see long-term consequences and they need the wisdom of a loving parent who will allow hardship in their life or discipline them to train them more into character development that is good. Amen? See, God heats flames up under us. He heats the silver. Not because he's some cruel, mean, unloving God, but on the contrary, because he is a good and faithful and loving father who is not okay leaving you in your impurities. The longer you walk with him, the more he will continue to go, there's still stuff that hasn't floated to the surface yet. And the truth is, most of us don't like to find those things and bring them to the surface. And a lot of times it takes trials to bring them out. We go through things and then we start responding in ways that we go, oh, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Why did that come out of me? And that flame increases, that temperature increases because God is good, because He is loving. If you think James is the only one who's making this argument and like, well, he just had a bad day. Now let's see what the one of the other apostles Peter said. First Peter chapter 4. He's going to say pretty much a, a lot of the same things. He says uh, in verse 12, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing or as something strange were happening to you." He's like, don't be surprised when you go through fiery trials, when you go through affliction, when you go through suffering. Don't be surprised as if it's some strange thing. He says, verse 13, but rejoice. But rejoice. in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, we get to rejoice in that we share in the suffering that Christ modeled. And lived for us. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's saying just like Jesus suffered for all of us. And then he was promoted into glory. We are invited to share in that suffering with him as well. I don't like that. None of us like that. Who wakes up on Monday morning going can't wait to suffer today. We don't. None of us do. But thankfully, God in his sovereign wisdom allows and even ordains trial in our life because he loves us enough to not let us stay where we're at. He wants us to look more and more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, when we are in that crucible of suffering, the way we respond reveals what's in our heart that is the trial the testing that proves our faith or lack thereof is our faith in Christ genuine we we tend to act surprised we tend to respond when when suffering's happening we tend to respond with why God why me why are you letting this happen why would you let this happen to me And in fact, it echoes a lot of the sentiments of King David when he wrote in the Psalms. I'm thinking of Psalm 13 and many other Psalms where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you let my enemies surround me? How long will you leave me? He says some things to God that I feel like I wouldn't even have the courage to say to God. But I think David understood, God sees my heart anyway, I may as well say it. He hears what's going on in my head and in my heart anyways. But what I love about David is all those times in Psalms where he would say, how long will you forget me? How long will you forsake me? How long will you let my enemies surround me? Why have you forgotten about me? He would vent his heart to the Lord and then he would always bring it back around and respond with something like, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging for bread. I will see the steadfast goodness of the mercies of the Lord. He would always, it was like, And being that vulnerable, honest self before the Lord, that he would return back to praise and worship of God, remembering the greater truths. You think, James and Peter aren't enough? I got one more apostle to throw at you this morning. Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning our relationship with God has been fixed by our faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. In hope of the glory of God. Saying, man, we've we've been made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Him dying on the cross. Our sins are forgiven and we've been restored into relationship with God. We rejoice in that hope. We rejoice in the glory that's coming. That there's a day coming where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more grief. None of it. It will all be conquered and gone. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Ooh. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, God cares about your growth more than he cares about your comfort. And if you've been sold a theology that says, follow Jesus and all your problems will go away. Just come to Jesus and he's going to fix all your problems. That's a preacher who's selling you a bill of goods. Turn them off, run away. Because these three apostles right here are telling us otherwise and you can see them saying a lot more about it. Further, you can see the Lord himself, Jesus, in John 16, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Recognizing we have an eternal hope that we look for, that we look forward to, that we long for and yearn for, yet at the same time, in our affliction one we are growing and secondly if we went to first or second corinthians chapter 1 we would see paul telling the corinthians hey when you go through affliction you get the blessing of knowing the comfort of the holy spirit that you wouldn't have known otherwise See, God has a paradigm wherein his nearness to us, his closeness to us, his presence within us, our perceiving his grace in our life, he thinks is a greater blessing than natural external comforts and pleasures and convenience. He looks down into the little speck of time that we live in from his eternal perspective wherein we're going, this is so hard and this has been going on so long. God, why would you forgive me? Why would you forsake me? Why would you let this happen? It's been going on so long. He's going, it's actually a fleeting moment. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know you're, you're broken. I know you're grieving, but I'm with you. And there's coming a day when you'll look back and you'll go, it was worth it. Every momentary affliction. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say these light and momentary afflictions. Same guy who was stoned multiple times, beaten with rods multiple times, shipwrecked, abandoned, left for dead, starving, has had a harder time than any of us. He says, these light and momentary afflictions afflictions that are leading to a far greater glory that cannot be compared. There is a day coming ahead for us that we are promised that we know whether you get your healing now or later, or your healing is made complete when you go and be with Christ. There is a day coming where we are 100% certain that there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. And in the meantime, absolutely, do we pray and ask God for healing every time. If you come up to me and tell me you're sick or not feeling well or injured, you know what my response is going to be? I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to heal you. I'm going to do that every time and I'm going to trust him with the outcome. I'm going to ask him to do it. I'm going to believe that he'll do it. And I'm going to trust him with the outcome. When's the last time you got sick or injured or had someone say something mean about you or gossip or whatever? When that happened, did you respond by saying, Praise the Lord! Right? That's how we all respond, right? Oh, just me? No. No, that's not our default. That's why he said, count it all joy. That's why they say, rejoice. This is something that takes a rewiring and a retraining of the way we are to to respond to suffering and affliction and difficulty according to the word of God. Do we say, thank you, Jesus, you are so good to me. You love me so much. You care about me so much that you want me to grow. That you want to purify me. Thank you that you love me so much that you're not willing to leave me impure and stagnant where I'm at, but you're calling me higher, which means you're calling me closer, and you want me to look more like you. It's a beautiful gift from the grace of God. In fact, this concept feels foreign, right? The idea that when suffering would come, when affliction would come, that you would go, thank you, Jesus. Feels foreign, right? It's not natural. It's not automatic. It's by the grace of God that we do this. But that's literally what James and Peter and Paul and others are saying to us, that we are to rejoice. They're saying rejoice and celebrate and get happy because God is proving your faith. That's not how we think by default, right? We don't go, woohoo! an opportunity to show that, I'm, that I have a genuine faith. Thank you, Lord, for giving me an opportunity to be faithful to you. Thank you, God, for giving me an opportunity to grow in steadfastness. Thank you, God, for cultivating and growing my character. Thank you. That's so much more important than all the trinkets and toys this world wants to offer me. Thank you that you want to mature me and make me more like you because he is good. And it is a lie from the pit of hell that when you are going through something, that when you are afflicted or suffering or going through trial, it is a lie from the pit of hell that would tell you, see, God doesn't care about you. See, see what he's letting you go through. Could God really love you and let this happen to you? A good God wouldn't do that to you. (laughs) Like Genesis, did God really say? Is God really good? Look around at the world. I mean, come on. No, it's actually. God is so good and so loving that he wants to continue to grow your character and he wants to continue to to wean you off of and separate you from the affections of this world. That's why the Apostle John in 1 John, he says, you cannot love the Father and love the world. You can't do it. And that's much of what this refining does, this this testing, this heating up, reveals areas in which we still have affections for the things of this world where he's going, let me just turn this up a little bit because I can see that you love this world. Still, I'm going to turn this up because you care more about your comfort and your convenience than you care about holiness. I'm going to turn this up because you care more about yourself than you care about others. And I want that to float up to the top so you can see it and we can scrape it off and it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but it's going to be oh so good. And in it, you get to know my nearness, my closeness. You get to know my grace, my presence, my grace that is sufficient in your weakness. We get to know the truth of Psalm 23 where the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff They comfort me. See, God knows that his comfort, his comfort, is better than the world's comfort. The world's comfort is fleeting. The bottle will heal you for a moment. Whatever other coping mechanism you have in your suffering will satisfy you for a moment. And we get the eternal, ever-present dwelling presence of God through the Holy Spirit within us. We get to know his comfort and affliction. I was crying with some friends last week in, in their affliction and trying to encourage them with the same truth from 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, saying you have an opportunity to know the comfort of the Lord in a way that those who are not afflicted don't know and it's hard this is counterintuitive countercultural which is why we need the word of god to reform our minds in the way that we think the damning tendencies that we have is when suffering arises we tend to turn to anything and everything that we can find to end it to help at least help us cope and we can treat prayer and patience and rejoicing and dependence on the grace of god as an afterthought now hear me out I am not saying don't seek help or, or medicine or whatever you, you think might improve your condition. Uh, I'm most certainly not saying don't pray. In fact, a lot of times that is the benefit of what we get in these times that we, st- we tend to pray more and spend more time with the Lord. We should be praying about our needs, our concerns, our pain, our struggles. And even the fact that I can note that Paul told Timothy, his young apprentice, he said, Hey, Timothy, I want you to drink a little wine for your frequent stomach infirmities. Interesting. He didn't tell him, hey, confess this verse and declare that you're healed. That's really interesting, I think. He said, I want you to drink a little wine for your frequent infirmities. And these are people who saw healings, saw miracles abundantly. So I don't think scripture has merit for us to not do natural things to take care of ourselves. Uh, Yet at the same time, why is that our default? Can I just remind you of this? As we wrap up, Jesus has already done more for us than we could ever ask for, than we could ever deserve, or we could ever imagine. Let me say this. If Jesus only, and I'm going to do as aggressive quotations as I can there, if Jesus only ever died for our sin then that is enough to deserve our passionate, overwhelming response of praise to him with every breath for the rest of our lives. We just sang, you are good, good, oh. I love that because it's like, you're good, you're so good that, oh. Words fail. Words fall short. Our breath is inadequate our response is inadequate to the goodness of God in our lives and that he solved and fixed and conquered our greatest problem. I'm not trying to minimize your suffering and your affliction. Hear me, I know it can be hard and heartbreaking and burdensome, but listen, I don't care what you're going through. It's not greater than the problem of sin. It's light and momentary affliction, Paul would say. And Jesus willingly took on flesh and went to the cross and went through a brutal, shameful death to fix your greatest problem. Greater than cancer. Greater than poverty. Greater than heart disease. Greater than family dynamics that are frustrated. Greater than job problems. Greater than anything you can name your greatest problem was and is sin. Sin. And Jesus came down on the cross and said, I've got it. You don't have to wonder if I love you, if I care about you, if I'm good for you and want good for you, because I conquered your greatest problem. Now, Jesus, absolutely, God still does miracles. He still heals. We should pray and long to see that. We should do what we can to take care of ourselves and whatever we need to do to respond with whatever we're facing yet, Please do not miss opportunity to go, this hurts. I want to choose to rejoice. Thank you, God. You love me. Thank you. You're good. Thank you that you care about my character growing. Thank you that you want to develop me and prune me and refine me and scrape out the impurities and the dross in my life. God uses suffering. Here's our final point. God uses suffering to prove and refine our faith. Not because he's evil, not because he's bad. On the contrary, it's actually because he's good. And we might in our adolescent temporary minds think this is not good. And he's going, oh, son, oh, daughter, I know it doesn't feel good, but it is for your good. And if you can remind yourself of the greater truth from my word, that I am good, that I love you, that I care about you more than you can fathom, I know what you need more than you know what you need. Every parent should say amen. I know what you need more than you think you know what you need. And I am allowing or ordaining things in your life so that your character can continue to grow, so that your hope in Christ and in eternity will continue to grow, that you do not fall into the temptation of living this life for this life, but you live this life for the next life, which is an open door of invitation to inconvenience and discomfort, to be used by God for his purposes and for his glory knowing there's a day when all of us If we took a poll and passed around the microphone, what kind of affliction are you facing? What are you going through? And we could share all those burdens together, yet look around the room and go, and there is coming a day when all of us get to look at each other, beholding the glory of Jesus Christ face to face and all this stuff you've been going through, all this suffering and pain you've been pressing through and trying to remain faithful, you will at at that day look at the face of Jesus and go, it was worth it. Every moment. If it helped me get here to see Him and be with Him for eternity, bring it on again tenfold. It's what you would say that day. And we get to share in the glories of the presence of God that make every joy, every comfort, every pleasure we experience in this life feel like child's play joy. There is a joy coming. There is a hope we have now for that day in the midst of affliction and suffering. We say, Lord, I'm longing for that day. That's the day I want to live for. Right now, this stinks. Would you help me? God, I rejoice that you're good and you know what's good for me. You have good for me. And I don't like the way this feels, but I know you care about me and I know you know everything and I know you're all powerful. So you must be doing something I don't understand. Let me not miss it and let me praise you the whole time. God, I ask that you would help this be true of us. Let it be true of me. Let it be true of all of us that we wouldn't miss what you're trying to do because we are so desirous of comfort and convenience. Lord, let your sanctifying work be be done in us for our good and for your glory that we can give praise to you because of your faithfulness, that we could know you more, that we could become nearer to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. in the reminds me of Romans 8:28 says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes what an anchor in the midst of these difficulties I can remember I don't know how I don't know when I don't know where I don't know the details that he knows but I do know it will all work together for the good I might not like it, it might not be when I want but it will all work together for the good of those who love God Are called according to his purposes, even when I don't see it. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're
1: working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never Come on one more time. Working. Even when I don't see it. You never stop. You, you never, never stop working. Even when I don't see it you're working. Even when I don't feel it you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it you're working. Even when I don't feel it you're working. You never stop. You never stop You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop
0: working. Thank you, Lord, that you're never done with us. I ask that you continue the work that you began in us. You would be faithful, and we know that you will be. Now, let let this work sink into our hearts. Let us become a people of rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name.